Well, good morning. My name is Jay Underwood. I'm the pastor of the junior high here at Calvary Bible Church. And this is a big day for me because as we say up in the West Wing up here, this is my trip up to the big show. (laughs) It's been a year since I was in the big show and I got a lot to say. So there may not be any picnic or any In-N-Out burger for any of you. I'm just kidding. We'll be out of here. And and, um, um, I was asked to point out that if you were just a arriving to get there as soon as you can towards one o'clock for the in and out burgers and you if you don't have a ticket yet you can still buy one there it's not too late so there you go so i want to put some tough questions to you today i want to really uh challenge you here and make you think so you tell me can you imagine playing baseball at our picnic today without a bat tough questions you guys golf club uh, golf without golf clubs What about building a house without a hammer? No nail guns either. How about driving a car without any brakes or um, surfing without a surfboard or trying to uh, take a picture without a memory card? You notice I didn't say film there, being that film is now obsolete. Or how about trying to watch a DVD player without a laser in the player or uh, trying to light a campfire without matches or maybe assuming you did get a lid. Can you imagine eating a s'more without graham crackers? How about racing uh, in, in a car race in a Nash Rambler? For those of you that know what a Nash Rambler is. Or how about deep sea diving without a dry suit or swimming with sharks without a cage or jumping from a plane without a parachute or bungee jumping without a bungee (laughs) climbing half dome without a rope or maybe um how about mount everest without oxygen how about a cowboy without a hat and chaps or a, a catcher on a baseball team without a face mask or a firefighter without his coat and turnouts or a police officer without a gun now of course these are these are all absurd and ridiculous scenarios that we would say of course not We'd say that to all of them, yet every day, many of us try and battle. We try and fight against Satan and his demons without any protection on whatsoever. And sometimes it's almost as if we're seemingly unafraid of that or or even unconcerned. Well, friends, let me tell you, we should be very afraid. We should be very afraid concerned because satan can be a very um, big destructive force in our lives and that includes for even us as believers i would venture to say that there are many christians out there that are going through some some pretty rough times right now really hellish times or or situations where they are feeling attacked or maybe they're they're feeling beaten up or beaten down and they they may even be wondering where god is in all of this but You see, God has never left them. And the problem may even be that they are trying to fight spiritual battles in a way that is even contrary to God's word. Maybe they have either knowingly or unknowingly cut God out of the equation during these these conflicts with the powers of darkness. Maybe they are having some issues with pride and don't want to ask God for help. Or or maybe they're, they're angry with God. Or maybe they don't even really know or understand who's behind these attacks. Maybe they don't understand that they're even in a spiritual battle. Well, friends, I'm here today to tell you that anyone who is a true follower of Christ faces spiritual warfare. It's a given. It's a done deal. It is going to happen. 
It is very real, and Satan is truly behind it. Now, that's the bad news. But there's some good news here, too. And that is that, praise God, he has given us some instructions so that we, with his help, will be able to handle it and come out on top. Now, our passage today is commonly known as the armor of God passage. It can be found in the book of Ephesians 6, chapter 6, verses 10 to 21. We go ahead and take a moment and turn there. And while you're doing that, I will just kind of give you a brief history as to what's been going on in the city of Ephesus, the Ephesian church of Paul's day. The church had many challenges back then. The the city um, was a wealthy port city. It was a a plethora of different kinds of people. There were many worldly, many uh, ungodly influences all around them. Oh, kind of reminds me of Los Angeles. In the religious realm, there was everything under the sun from uh, magic arts to idol worship. It was the home of the goddess Artemis. They even had, had built an incredible temple there that is considered a wonder of antiquity to these false gods. Needless to say, it must have been difficult for a Christian believer in Ephesus with so many of these kinds of influences, much like Los Angeles. Now, the book of Ephesians can really be broken down into two major categories. There's, there's the first three chapters, which kind of encompasses the call of the church. And then, and then Paul switches over for the last three, and it can be called the conduct of the church. Chapter 1, Paul blesses God as the one who chooses all believers before the foundation of the world. And then in chapter 2, he tells them how they've been saved by grace through faith and not of their works. In three, he tells them of the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. In chapter four, Paul switches gears now and he focuses on really putting their faith into practice. He exhorts them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called and to lay aside the old self and be renewed in their mind and put on the new self. And in chapter five, Paul calls believers to be imitators of God and to be filled with the Holy Spirit And then he talks about relationships, doesn't he? He talks about um, a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, and he compares it to Christ and the church. He he talks about um, the relationship between children and parents and also slaves and their masters. And then finally, Paul gets to our text today in Ephesians 6. And you see, Paul, he knows very well the struggles of the Ephesian church. He knows what they're up against, especially with all of the, the crazy and outside influences from the city, again, with magic arts and idolatry and paganness and immorality, debauchery, all of these things, etc. And Paul, he wants to warn them of these and other dangers that they most certainly will encounter. And he wants to tell them what kind of defensive measures they have at their disposal. Now, he also realizes that these influences are ultimately not of flesh and blood, as we will see, or in other words, people. It's not from human beings. But these battles are really brought on by Satan and his demons. The battle the Ephesian church is in is is a spiritual battle. And this translates to us today. Now, having spent many years in the entertainment industry, I I now believe that, that it is a playground for Satan much like Ephesus was. Now, of course, the whole world is Satan's playground. After all, he is the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2, 2, and the whole world lies in his power, 1 John 5, 19. But you see, sometimes there there are places or there are things that are particularly appealing to Satan, and I think used by him to a larger degree. 
Or it could be that he has even created these things to enact his own evil operations. Well, in any case, like the Ephesian church, we are in a constant spiritual battle against these forces of evil. Now, sure, Satan uses anything and everything, including people, to put his schemes into practice. But as Paul points out in this passage, it is not other people that we are battling against, but none other than the devil himself. And fortunately for us, God has provided a way for the believer to defend themselves and to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And this is exactly what Paul imparts to the Ephesian church and subsequently to us here in Burbank today. So imagine, if you will, for a moment that you have just been recruited. You have been recruited and signed up for active duty in the military. And now you are at your first day of boot camp and you're being addressed by your drill sergeant. Sergeant Paul and Sergeant Paul is going to tell us three things today that we need in order to be safe in battle. And they are this number one, he's going to give us a call to arms. And we're going to see that in verses 10 to 13. Then he is going to introduce to us the armor given to us. And then he is going to tell us about this not so secret weapon. That is at our disposal. Now, for the sake of time, I'm, I'm not going to read the whole passage right now. We will read it as we go. But first, um, we have our call to arms. And this is, this is Paul's rallying cry to us. It's, it's him rallying the troops. And it starts off in verse 10, where he says, finally, be strong. Now, the first word we see in verse 10, finally. So we know that this, this passage is significant because it's wrapping up or it's ending something. And, and what is it ending? Well, in this case, it's really ending the whole letter. So finally, here's what Paul has to say. And he says this to us, be strong. Literally, be strengthened. Now, you might be saying, uh, yeah, okay, that's, that's easy for you to say, Paul, great, be strong. You know, I'm not a very strong person. You know, I'm, I'm not really the fighter type. I, I, don't, I don't work out with weights. I mean, I've never been to boot camp. I don't even have a gym membership. How am I going to be strong in battle? But you see, the, the next phrase is what makes us be strong so significant. Look at it. Be strong or be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In the Lord, his might. You see, the strength, it's not even going to come from us. It's going to come from God and more specifically Christ. Now, now, now what about that for a second? Really? Can we be absolutely certain that Christ has enough strength for us? That he has enough might for us to battle Satan? I, I mean, how strong is his might? Well, uh, let's see. Considering that Christ is the only person in the history of the earth to ever raise himself from the dead, <laughs> I'd say that's pretty strong or, or, um, Go back to Genesis when uh, Christ was there with the Father and with the Spirit and single-handedly created the earth and the heavens and everything out. Well, he didn't single-handedly create it. He created it out of his speech. It was spoken into existence. I would say that's pretty strong. What about Hebrews 1.3 when it says that Christ upholds all things by the word of his power? Well, praise God that we don't have to rely on our own strength but rather a far superior strength, a, a super strength, if you will, that can only come from Christ. Well, next, the believer is told how to be strong in the Lord by putting on his armor. Look at 611. Put on the full armor of God. 
Now, this first word to put on, it's an imperative, which means it is a command. We have to do this. And believe me, folks, this is something we definitely want to do. I mean, could you imagine being uh, sent over to Iraq and dropped into enemy territory wearing your uh, cargo shorts and um, some sunglasses, a pair of flip-flops, and uh, a T-shirt with a big picture of George Bush on the front? Huh? <laughs> No, no, that would be insane, wouldn't it? No, we would want the best protection on us possible. We would want iron-plated, iron-coated everything, bulletproof this and that. So here we are told to put on, meaning to clothe ourselves. But put on what? The whole armor of God, the full armor of God, which can also be the whole armor. Uh, Paul would have known plenty about what a Roman soldier would have worn as he wrote this letter from prison. And full armor refers to enough armor in order to have the maximum protection that would be needed. Um, in Paul's day, the Roman soldier would most likely have had a shield. They would have had a, a sword, a javelin, helmet, greaves, which were for the uh, shins, a breastplate um, for your chest. Or if you're wealthy, you may have a, a coat of chain mail. You would have had sandals, of which we'll, we'll talk about more later. And lastly, it's important to note, again, that this armor, it's not something that we manufacture ourselves. You know, it, it, it doesn't come from us. We don't have to go in our garage and look for it. Now, this, this armor is from God. God here is our supply sergeant. This is similar to what we find in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, when it says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful. Now, I mean, seriously, would you like your armor coming from Walmart, or would you like it coming from Godmart? Simple, uh, simple equation. Then the next part of this verse answers the why. Why do we need this full armor of God? Look at 11 again. So that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. This really helps us to understand more of the nature of the battle that we are in. It's a spiritual battle, friends. And our main adversaries, we've already said, is none other than Satan himself. We now see that the only way to stand firm, to be able to stand firm, is because we have first put on God's armor. Now, this idea of standing firm in, in the Greek, it means to, to stand up against, to resist. It's the idea that someone in the midst uh, of a fight or a battle, they hold their position. I watched a, a movie recently with my, my wife. Um, it was an old uh, Kirk Douglas movie called Paths of Glory. It's this black and white Stanley Kubrick movie in 1957, and it's a war film, and... and um, and in it, these uh, soldiers are, are told that they have to go and take the anthill. And the, um, they're French soldiers, and they're in the foxholes. And uh, they're, it's the seemingly um, um, impossible task, and they have to do it the next day. And, uh, and so Kirk Douglas rallies his troops, and, um, and they all kind of are realizing that this is, boy, a lot of people are going to die here, and this is probably not even possible. But they do it anyway, and they run out there, and bombs are going off, and explosions, and they're working their way slowly but surely, and it's too much for them. And they're overtaken, and they have to retreat back. Well, this is the opposite for us. There is no retreating. There is no retreating. God gives us enough armor that we can stand firm and resist the devil. It's a given. It's a done deal. Standing firm, it also seems to be more here uh, talking about uh, taking a defensive position as opposed to, say, an offensive one. In this passage, specifically, the believer is never told to advance, but rather to stand firm. 
And as you will see, this Greek word will be repeated um, three more times before we're done today. And, and uh, my wife pointed out that you'll see there's three stand firms in there and there's one resist. And, and you'll find out that they all come from the same word family. So, so we got four. Friends, we must remember. We want to remember for a moment. We want to be encouraged that throughout Scripture, we are, we are assured that the war, the big picture here, it, it's already been won. Christ and us along with him already reign victorious. So you see, it's not a question of winning or losing against Satan. And Satan knows this. But he will still try and do everything in his power so that he can wound us, so they can hurt us. He he might derail God's people. And believe me, he will stop at nothing. He is the father of lies. He is the great deceiver who loves to scheme and try and get God's people to disobey him. His schemes, however, are not always the most obvious head-on assaults, but rather he employs very cunning, very unsuspecting strategies to catch believers unaware or, or believers who have, who have dropped down their guard. Listen, we all know that, that Satan is not going to show up in the, the, um, the Halloween version of the uh, pointy tail and the red suit and the pitchfork and the horns and the little mustache now satan is going to be very very appealing when you least expect it you can expect it now guys for you satan might be um impersonating some model on a magazine or or on the internet saying hey open me up come on just take a little peek it's not a big deal it's one little little look and a hurt. Or maybe it's a, it's a co-worker trying to kind of carouse you and to take part in this off-color joke that they're telling for our kids. Maybe it's uh, them staring at that big giant chocolate chip cookie warming on the stove that their mother has told them they cannot have until after dinner. Maybe for our youth, it's uh, things like um, um, being encouraged to take part in gossip at school. Or even a step further, maybe they're, they're uh, uh, being encouraged to come to this party. Or to try their first cigarette or take that first drink. For ladies, maybe he is in your TV set saying, hey, come on, you've been working hard. You deserve a break today. Just sit down, relax, flip on the channel. A little Jerry Springer isn't going to kill you. Little soap opera, days of our lives. Think about it. Have you ever put yourself in a position of temptation because your guard was down and you realized in hindsight what a fool you were? Or does that only happen as Pastor Jack would say to those folks back east? Friends, Satan looks for. He helps to create these moments when you are most vulnerable and prone to sin. He loves those moments. And that is why we always need to have on the full armor of God. Let's move on to verse 12. Paul fills us in even more about this struggle that we are in and who else along with Satan is behind these attacks. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. You see, Paul wants to make it perfectly clear that the underlying roots of the battle that we are in are against spiritual for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Struggle here meaning to, to wrestle, 
It has the idea of this, this hand-to-hand combat, grappling, face-to-face, up close, tugging. And, 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 and yet it's not other people that we're struggling against. Sure, sure, Satan may use other people. He will use all kinds of things to, um, to enact his scheming, including people. But Paul wants to remind us that the undercurrent of this war is spiritual in nature. And you see this, this knowing this should cause our dependence to be solely on God and solely on this armor that he has provided for us. Now, Paul continues by giving us some examples of uh, the satanic spiritual forces at work against the believer. Uh, He speaks of the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And none of these these forces or beings that Paul is talking about in this passage are are referencing um, um, human beings. It's it's not referencing people like presidents or kings or, or governors or heads of state. And how do we know this? By the context. We know that Paul just said the struggle is not against flesh and blood. But also the words for rulers, uh, for the words for um, powers, which is also translated as authorities. We also find in a similar context in Ephesians 3.10 prior where Paul references them in a spiritual context. Now, now some of you may, may be saying right now, wait, wait a minute. Wait, how, how can Satan and his minions be hanging around in the heavenly places? That doesn't seem right. Yet we see in God's word that is exactly right. Satan and his demons do have access to the heavenly places. In Job, God and the devil converse in heaven, as well as both good and evil angels struggle together in heaven and on earth, as seen in Daniel ten thirteen and verse 20. So it happens. Verse 13 says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm Now, therefore, whenever we see a therefore, it means that something is being concluded. In this case, what's being referred to is essentially a a restatement of verse 11. It's this command of taking up the armor. And then we have the why of putting on the armor of God. Now, when anybody repeats themselves, including Paul, they do it for emphasis, right? Here, Paul wants to emphasize the importance, the actual necessity of taking up or putting on this armor. And what's interesting here is we also need to be reminded that this taking up or putting out of this armor, this is our responsibility. This isn't God's. We don't just stand there and magically poof and whoa, hey, nice. God says, here it is. I have it for you. But you need to take it. You need to put it on. It's our responsibility to have our armor prepared and ready for spiritual battles. When I was a kid, my dad was a police officer, and, uh, and one of the things that I got to do that I, I just thought was the coolest was every night before he would go to work, he would, um, he'd pull out his uh, gun belt, and he'd lay it all out, and he'd pull out his boots, and he'd set them out, and he'd get his bulletproof vest and put that out and have his uniform ready. And I was the one that was kind of like the caretaker of his uh, belt and boots. I got to polish his boots, and uh, that may not sound like much fun, but to me it was pretty cool. It was, it was it was um, helping my dad out, and he'd give me the brasso to do on each little piece of brass and make it shine and sparkle. And the point here is, is that it was my dad's responsibility to be ready to go to work. And if he didn't, it could cost him his life. And so he had his bulletproof vest ready, and he had his belt ready, and his handcuffs, and his mace, and his extra bullets, and his gun. He made sure that these things were all in check and ready to go. 
And it's the same with us, with the spiritual armor that we're given. We need to make sure that it's ready to go, that it's in good shape. And believe me, folks, we don't want to forget a piece. One piece could be very destructive. And again, why do we take up this armor? Well, the, the, the next part of verse 13 mirrors verse 11 again, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. Now, this word for resist um, is actually in the same Greek word family, as I said, as the word for stand firm. The difference being that it translates here more to, to stand against or to withstand. So counting resist, this will be the second time that we are told to stand firm or resist the devil. And another thing to consider from verse 13 is this phrase in the evil day. Now, really, what, what is that referring to? Well, there's several different views that people take, but the most appropriate view is that Paul is acknowledging that we are in a period of time here um, between the two comings of Jesus, as we see back in, in Ephesians 5.16, when he says to make the most of your time because the days are evil. And as well, he's also uh, pointing out that we as Christians, we'll, we will have specific days when evil will be more pointedly directed at us. So the evil day can be any time in our life when Satan will specifically attack us. And this is seen in the, in the bigger picture of the evil days of this present age, which would culminate uh, until, of course, Christ returns. Now, how about the last part of this verse? And having done everything to stand firm. This simply means that if we have put on God's armor, if we have done as God has commanded, if we have prepared ourselves, then we are now ready to stand firm. Mind you, this is the third time we are told to stand firm or to resist, which means what? It is important. It's very important. So now just to, just to recap a little before we get to these different pieces of armor, which are just great. Paul knows that the days are evil, right? And that Satan is launching a full-scale attack on all believers. But we're not to fear. We're not to fear because, remember, the ultimate battle between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, has already been decided. And who wins again? Christ. Jesus. Which means all of us who are believers, we have won too. You see, we don't, we don't have to worry about winning a battle, friends. This fight with Satan is not about winning or losing in this, this big picture kind of way. This is, this is not about Satan battling us to take away our, our salvation. Now, I, I repeat, and please listen to me. This is, this is integral. If you are a true follower of Christ, you cannot, you cannot under any circumstances lose your salvation. Now, there are plethora of verses that we could go to for that. And if you're interested in any of those, please find me right afterwards. Um, and, uh, and I'd be happy to unload some of those on you. But can Satan make a mess of your life? <laughs> sure he can. Sure, if you let him. If you let your guard down or, or you try to face him unprepared, then you are setting yourself up for a very rocky, uh, a very discouraging, a very woeful time. But again, fortunately for us, we have this way out. We have a way to stand firm against Satan if we will wear God's protective armor. This is all the strength we need. I mean, it's really about the suit. Am I right? I mean, the movies tell us that, right? Look at Superman this summer. Huh? Clark Kent, man. The guy's nothing without the suit. You put the suit on him and he's Superman. He's flying around and battling evil. It's the same with us. 
We need a protective suit. And we are given that, that protective suit in the form of, of God's armor. Now, which leads us to the next part of our passage. What is this armor? So we've heard about this armor, but what exactly is it? And this is uh, Drill Sergeant Paul coming back to us. And now he is telling us exactly what the armor given to us is. And we look at verse 14. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Well, we're told here the fourth time to stand firm. It's an actual, excuse me, command because it's another imperative. And this idea to stand firm was not only important to Paul here in this particular text, but it is throughout the writings of Paul. We see it in 1 Thessalonians uh, 3.8, 2 Thessalonians 2.15 and Galatians 5.1. And there's also another therefore here, which tells us what? It's a summary statement. It's telling us that, that once we have on all of these different pieces, then we can and should stand firm. Now, here we go. Let's see what these pieces of of spiritual armor are. 14, having girded your loins with truth. Now, this phrase may be um, capitalized or maybe italicized, or excuse me, um, um, have a a reference note by it in your Bible, which which indicates that most likely Paul is either quoting or referencing another passage. And in this case, it would be um, Isaiah 11, 5, which says, also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now, when we look in the Greek Septuagint, faithfulness, this word for faithfulness is also translated as truth. How awesome it is that the armor that we are receiving is actually the very same armor that God uses himself. In our passage, to gird your loins, it means to bind around the hip or the waist, um, much like a belt would be. Uh, here it refers to the part of the Roman soldier's uh, garb that was uh, made of leather, and it had leather thongs that would um, come down protecting the soldier's thighs. And what is it that we are told to bind ourselves with? Well, notice that this is the first thing on the list, and it is there because it is really the foundation to all the other pieces. Truth. What kind of truth? God's truth. His objective truth that we find in the pages of Scripture. As believers, we need to belt ourselves with the Word. And at the root of the Word is the gospel of Christ. And when we do this, friends, we are able to live our lives in truth. We are able to live our lives in integrity. God's integrity. It's God's truth being played out in the life of a believer, isn't it? And that truth is going to show up. It's going to show up in our lives, in our attitudes, in our speech. It's going to show up in our actions. And this is part of our defense against Satan. I mean, think about it. It makes sense, right? Does Satan like truth? No. No, he's the father of lies. Far from it. Next one, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Again, Paul probably had in mind here um, Isaiah 59, 17, which has Isaiah writing about God to um, coming to deliver his people and punishing the, their enemies, saying, he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. Now, the breastplate was a protective covering made of metal. It could be uh, also chain mail if you were wealthy, we said. But nonetheless, it was for protecting the, the t- uh, chest, the torso area. And what kind of righteousness? Yes, God's righteousness. That's right. As believers, when we put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth, Ephesians 4.24, then we now have a new heart that can and should display God's righteousness in our daily life. Again, it's in the way we deal with God, in the way we, we deal with other people, in the way that we even see ourselves. 
You see, we are to act and behave righteously, are we not? Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. If we imitate God, it stands to reason that we are going to be acting righteously. Tell me, do you think Satan likes seeing us behave like God? Not on your life. And by wearing the breastplate of righteousness, God's righteousness, believers will guard their hearts against the assault of the evil one. Let's move on. Verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. What is it to shod your feet? I mean, really, couldn't Paul have just said, put on your shoes, you know? Well, shod, it, it does. It means to bind. It means to, to fasten under, and it would have been your sandals being tied on with straps. So, yeah, we could say, put on and tie up your sandals. And for the Roman soldier, however, the sandal would have been a little different than most. It would have been made with uh, um, uh, layers of, of leather that would, would bring it to about three-quarters of an inch thick. It would have been studded like a, a cleat, like uh, the way baseball cleats or, or golf shoes used to be with the metal spikes. So it would give them great traction. And it was designed especially for when they were in those moments of, 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 of up-close, hand-to-hand combat, that wrestling again and grappling and being able to hold yourself up, your position. And what are they to shod their feet with? We are to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, we're going to kind of work backwards here, okay? First, we want to understand what's meant by the gospel of peace, and then we'll see how that, that fits in with the rest. Well, well, gospel, we, we uh, many of us know, means good news, right? And it's most commonly referred to as the good news of Christ. It, it speaks of man's separation from God because of man's sin, and, of course, man's reconciliation with God through repentance. This is brought on by, by God's grace through faith and belief in the saving work of Jesus Christ. By the means of his death and resurrection, which, which therefore bring on the promise of eternal life with God. So what is significant about this gospel of peace? Well, you see, it's the gospel that brings peace. I mean, we can look back in the Old Testament and read in Isaiah 52, 7. How lovely on the mountain, mountains on the, are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And there's really a, a twofold kind of piece here. There's a vertical and a horizontal. You see, the messenger is at the same time proclaiming peace through salvation between man and God. And because of this, peace amongst God's people. And I believe that this is how we are to take this passage. The gospel is at the same time the good news of peace with God. And because of this, peace amongst people who love his son. As well, this peace manifests itself in the life of a believer and again is attested to by the believer's thoughts, your thoughts. It's attested to by your words, by your deeds. Ask yourself, do I have peace with God? Have I seen my sin against God? Have I repented? Have I believed in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Have I made God the Lord and Savior of my life or even better, the treasure What is most dear to me? What is most important to me? And because of this, do I experience peace with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, now we're going to take this and we'll go back to this word preparation, which also means readiness. And how does this tie in with the gospel of peace? 
Well, it's, it's usually viewed one of two ways. See, some would say that because all of these pieces of armor refer back to the defensive stance of, of standing firm at the beginning of verse 14. So, so preparation or readiness is a result of the gospel of peace. And, and it is what enables believers to stand firm. And others would say that we need to be prepared or ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. And, and there is biblical evidence to support both views. Both are true of the believer. We are prepared and ready to stand firm against Satan because we have the gospel of peace. And we are repeatedly exhorted in scripture to always be prepared and ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. So in this case, the two go hand in hand, really. Isn't it ironic, though, that when the hosts of evil wage war against us, what are we to defend ourselves with? The gospel of peace. Now, this next phrase is pretty simple to understand. Verse 16. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Now, in this case, the word for shield, it appears only here in the New Testament. And we're not talking about some wimpy little little handheld, you know, shield kind of thing. Now, we are talking about the big dog of shields. There's, a, there's a, a pizza place in Burbank where it says home of the big mama and the big papa pizza. If you've ever gotten one of those, you know, they come to your house and you literally have to take the box and turn it sideways to get it in the door. It's huge. Well, this shield is the big papa of shields, folks. It's not a wimpy little shield. It's huge. It would have been made of two wood planks glued together. It would have measured about four feet high, two and a half feet wide. It doesn't seem very tall, but you would have crouched behind it. But the shield would have been six to eight inches thick. It would have been incredibly heavy with a thick curved surface covered first with canvas and then calf skin. Um, there would be metal on the top and bottom edges to protect the wood when it hit the ground. And on the front center, there would be a boss of, of metal that would help to deflect uh, um, large rocks, stones, arrows. I mean, could you imagine holding up this little wimpy shield, hand-to-hand combat, or excuse me, combat when the arrows are flying in from all directions? Well, in addition, the shield that we have is a shield of faith. It is the Christian's rock-solid and resolute faith. It believes in and trusts the promises of God, confident that he will protect us in the midst of battle. First Peter 5, 8 to 9 says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. It is the shield of faith that allows the believer to, just like in verse 11, to be able. Meaning, it, this isn't a maybe. This is a promise. You will be able. Able to what, you ask? What's well, right here in the text? Extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's a done deal, folks. We're going to kind of work backwards again here. The evil one, of course, is the devil or Satan. This word for flaming arrows, it can mean any missile-like weapon, um, like an arrow or a dart, but it can also refer to a sword or a spear or a javelin. Um, Just like an arrow, a javelin could even be covered in pitch. They could light it on fire and it could be thrust at the enemy, hoping that it would uh, penetrate the shield and ignite the shield on fire. 
And then, of course, once you've got this shield with a fire javelin and your shield's on fire, you're most likely going to abandon it. You're not going to get very far with it. And that would leave yourself open to uh, further harm. And it's another reason why they would cover um, the shields with the canvas and the calfskin, and then they would soak it in water. So hopefully the water would extinguish the flames. Likewise, our shield of faith, when used, it will always extinguish or put out Satan's flaming arrows. That's a, that's an awesome promise. And what might these flaming arrows look like to the believer? Hmm? Certainly any kind of temptation towards ungodly behaviors. We see back in Ephesians four twenty-five to 31, this might include falsehood, which would be any kind of untruth or deception or lie. It would include sinful or unresolved anger, temptation towards unwholesome or wicked words. Or anything that would grieve the Holy Spirit of God. It might include temptation towards bitterness or wrath or anger again or slander, clamor, malice. And of course, there's also other things like pride, doubt, anxiety, despair, greed, external assaults such as persecution or false teaching. And and believe me, this is only a partial list of these temptations that will come flying at us. Commentator Harold Honer writes that, quote, this shield of resolute faith protects believers from spiritual harm aimed at them by the evil one. It not only stops the fiery weapons of attack, but actually extinguishes them, thus rendering them useless. Believers must be wary of laying aside their shields of faith and attempting to fight the battle in their own strength, end quote. And you know what? When your faith is put to the test, and you stand firm in it, what happens? What happens? It gets stronger, doesn't it? It gets even more rock solid. It gets even firmer and thicker. So that the next time the next flame arrow comes at you, it's that much easier to deflect. It's one of the great blessings. Verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This helmet and the sword would be the last two pieces of armor that a soldier would deal with. The helmet would be held until the last moment because it would become very hot. Kind of like my coat. I kept my coat off until the last minute. It would be very hot and and, uh, you wouldn't want to put it on until the last minute. The sword would, would most likely be drawn once the enemy was in view. Of salvation, the helmet of salvation means that this helmet, now worn by the believer, is salvation himself. And again, comes from God. It's God taking off his own very helmet, saying, here, wear it. Protect that that most valuable part of your body. It can cause instant death. Wear my helmet of salvation. Be saved. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8 says, But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Oh, friends, hope here in this context, it doesn't mean hope like, man, I hope I win the lottery. Oh, I really hope I get a Ferrari. Oh, I hope that there's going to be leftover in and out burgers that I might be able to have two of them. No, no, this is hope as in promise. It's a promise of God. Once saved, always saved. Salvation here summarized in, in Ephesians 2, 5 to 6 is something already accomplished for believers by God's grace. You see, we've been made alive with Christ, raised up, already seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ. This is incredible, folks. 
Paul is is perfectly clear about the fact that God has rescued believers. He has rescued us from death. He has rescued us from wrath. He has rescued us from bondage. And he has transferred us to a new dominion where Christ rules right now. And as we live in the light of our new status in Christ and and as our salvation is sanctifyingly worked out, as it says in Philippians 2.12, then we... As believers have every reason to be confident and every reason to be assured of the outcome of these battles. You see, as soldiers in the army of the Lord, we can feel safe with our helmet of salvation on in the midst of conflict, in the midst of war. And let me tell you, don't you think that really ticks Satan off? You bet it does. Sends him running. Second part of verse 17, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This last piece is actually the only one that's really designed as both a defensive and offensive weapon, the sword of the spirit. The sword of the Roman soldier uh, of Paul's day was known as a Spanish sword. It, it had a double-edged blade, approximately two inches wide, two feet long, and was proudly used as a cut and thrust item. Up close confrontations. And what's awesome here? about the sword mentioned in the text is the fact that we have this, this, this great and wonderful sword, but it's one that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what we would need for spiritual battle, is it not? I mean, of course, it is also the very word of God. Now, this word in, in Greek, is it's not the one that we're use, used to for word of God, logos, but it's actually rima. The two are often interchangeable, but Rima um, maybe has a little more to do with the spoken or, or proclaimed word. And this means that Paul is stressing, stressing the actual speaking forth of God's word. Paul is probably going back to Isaiah 49 too here where it says, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. And it's interesting to note again that the sword of the spirit can be used defensively or offensively. Of course, uh, once one is in battle, the line between the two obviously becomes blurred as it's constantly changing, going back and forth and... The Bible supports uh, both uses of the sword. However, with the call four times in this text to stand firm and resist Satan, I believe that its primary function in in the context of the passage, again, is for defense. A great example of this is when Jesus was tempted by the devil out in the desert. The devil would attack, 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 and Jesus would defend himself with what? The sword of God, the word of God. In the Star Wars movies, it's... uh, it's great. You often see the Jedi Knights, right? And they have their lightsabers and they're expertly wielding these lightsabers around. And sometimes they'll be uh, shot at by laser guns and you just see them going, right? They even do it with their eyes closed. Why do they do it with their eyes closed? Mark, why? They have the what? The force. They have the force, right? They have this, this external thing that gives them power, right? Well, that's in, that's in movie land. In real life, we have the word of God. We have the power of God. We have God's might. We have God's strength. Well, now we're on to our last, uh, our last point from Sergeant Paul here. The not-so-secret weapon. Even though Paul is finished with the actual armor of God, there's still a few more things that are necessary to do while in a spiritual battle. And we see this in verse 18. He says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit. 
This is the attitude a believer is to have, much like the command in 1 Thessalonians 5.19 to pray without ceasing. You see, prayer and petitioning or, or making requests of God is as vital as the reading of God's word. It's the other half, right, of having this personal relationship with God. It builds up your trust in him. It builds up your dependence on him. And especially when things are not going well for you or, or, or you're under Satan's attack or things are just kind of crumbling around you in your life. You see, we need to let God know that it's him we are depending on, that it's him we are trusting in, that it's him we, we are saying, Lord, yes, I am getting my strength from you, not of myself. We need to ask God for his help. We need to ask him to get us through whatever it is that Satan is throwing at us. And how are we to pray and petition God? It says there in 18, in the spirit. This goes back to Ephesians 5.18 where believers are told to be filled with the spirit. And of course, in that context, it's as opposed to being drunk with wine. But the principle is such that we should always be filled with the spirit, folks. Because it's only the spirit that allows or, 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 or gives us the ability, empowers us to be able to do anything pleasing to God. Or in this case, to be able to stand firm in battle. You see, as believers, at our moment of salvation, we receive the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that doesn't mean that every day of our life, every, every moment is, is spirit-filled or walking in the Spirit. Whose fault is that? Is it God's fault? Is God, whoa, oh, sorry. Sorry there, I turned my back for a minute and didn't realize I wasn't giving you uh, enough spirit. No, no, it's us. It's our fault. Sometimes we're lured away by the treasures of the world, aren't we? Sometimes uh, we're lured away by things that give us short-lived moments of happiness or pleasure. Or maybe we become indifferent in our walks. This indifference might be brought about by laziness. Laziness towards godly disciplines like reading our Bibles or, or, or praying or laziness towards being involved in a local church body or exercising our spiritual gifts or not fellowshipping with the saints. Man, we're going to have a good time fellowshipping with the saints this afternoon, aren't we? Basically, it all revolves around sin. It all revolves around unconfessed, undealt with sin. So we need to be confessed up. We need to be walking with God in order to be ready for this battle. And he continues in 18, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. Now, being mindful of how we need to pray at all times in the spirit, we are called to, just as it says, be on the alert, stand watch, be on guard, look out for any possible threats. And how are we to do this? It says it right after, with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. So we are to devote ourselves to, we are to persist in keeping alert for signs of danger. And guess what? Not just for ourselves, but for each other. We need to be looking out for each other, folks. We need to be watching out for each other. Yes, we need to watch out for our own walks. Are we on the path? We also need to watch out for our brothers and sisters. Hey, stop. Stop. You're going you're gonna to step into a hole. Or, or, or stop. Stop. The, 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 the safe's going to fall on your head. But of course, in terms of our, our spiritual walks, We need to look out for each other. We need to remind each other of temptations and of sin and things that can get in the way. Things that will help us to not stand firm. Allow Satan to cut our feet out from under us. Harold Honer again writes, 
Prayer causes alertness, and alertness keeps believers in prayer. If they are not alert, they do not see the dangers and thus see no need to pray. We have to remember that this prayer, it is access to the Father, right? It is access to the Father, and we are called to be in the habit of praying. We are to be in the habit of petitioning God. Just check out Matthew 7, 7 to 11 sometime. Well, not to belabor this more and... We're at our last two verses. I'm going to kind of give you a, a, a summary more or less. Paul's given us everything that we need, but now he kind of turns it on himself. And he says in verse 19, And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. It's kind of like Paul showing all this now put into practice. He's turning around saying, Hey, by the way, pray for me. You see, I'm in prison here, and I know the things that I am saying are not um, thought of very highly. Um, the Jews were not too keen on this idea that the Gentiles would be uh, in the kingdom of heaven with them. And so they're at him, and he is on trial. He's even possibly looking at facing Nero himself, wicked, despicable Nero. And he's saying, pray for me. Pray for me, because I, like you, will be under attack. Satan will try these things. He will... He will go after me and I need your prayers as well. It's interesting that Paul points out the fact that he's this ambassador uh, in chains, literally a chain. It's kind of this ironic picture showing this awesome respect that Paul has for his office as an apostle, even while he's in prison and chained up like a dog. You ever notice, too, that Paul never throws pity parties for himself? Let's face it. Anybody that could throw a pity party for himself and take a few moments and go, Oh, woe is me, would be Paul. And yet, what does he ask for here? Does he say, Oh, man. (laughs) No. No, he says, Make me bold. Pray for boldness for me. That I will share the mystery of the gospel. That I will speak boldly as I ought to speak. And what does all this mean for us? It means that we too should be living out our faith in a way such as Paul. For instance, can you call yourself an ambassador of Christ? Or better yet, do you think Christ sees you in that way? Are you willing to be persecuted for your faith? Or or even in the midst of that persecution and evil attacks, will you speak boldly of Christ as you ought to speak? So what have we learned here today about facing Satan's evil attacks? Well... Paul, number one, gives us a call to arms, this rallying cry to be strong in the Lord, put on the full armor of God, stand firm against Satan. And he also tells us exactly the armor given to us that consists of the belt of truth, that consists of the breastplate of righteousness, the sandals of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And finally, we are told about this not-so-secret weapon that we are to pray and petition God for each other. Friends, let me just remind you that we are in a very real, ongoing spiritual battle against Satan and his demons. Some of these battles seem worse than others, don't they? It doesn't mean that every battle is uh, uh, about a... the worst thing that you can imagine going on in your life. It could be little pinpricks, too. Little small things. 
And these, these battles tend to ebb and flow, don't they? One week or month or year, things seem to be going pretty well on our spiritual walks. And all of a sudden, bam, something comes around the corner that we didn't expect. Something that sends us into a, a tailspin or, or running for cover or feeling helpless and alone. I mean, we might even feel like we're frantically treading water just trying to keep our head above. And the whole point of what Paul wants to convey to us in this passage is, yes, these things are going to happen. They're going to come. Satan will be on the prowl and he will come after you. He has got it out for us. But folks, we don't have to go it alone. We're not even supposed to. One last word from Mr. Honer, he says, nuclear wars cannot be won with rifles. Likewise, satanic wars cannot be won by human energy. Neither of these pieces of armor, and he's referring to the helmet and the sword here, nor all of the other pieces are available as the result of human endeavor. No, we are to rely on God and the perfect resources that he has made available to every believer. We have the very armor of God, his very own armor at our disposal. He's saying, here it is. It's in perfect condition, perfect shape. It's for you. Take it, wear it, stand firm. Use them. You also have an open line to me. I am here whenever you want. Talk to me, pray to me, petition me, ask me to help you. Because friends, it is the only way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for this um, great passage, Lord, about these awesome things that you have given us, God, that, that to battle Satan, to fight against him, telling us that we're not alone, God. We, we, um, we, we don't have to face all these attacks and these problems and life's woes with, without you and without some kind of covering. And yet it's a perfect covering, God. It's a kind of covering that, that will not fail. And I pray for all of these folks here that they would take on the full armor of God. They would stand firm. You would help them to resist against the, the wiles of the evil one, God. And if there's somebody here that doesn't yet know you and knows they don't have the armor of God available to them, God, maybe this morning is the morning that you will, that you will speak to their heart, Lord, and that you will uh, um, cause them to repent of their sins and place their faith in your son Christ and be obedient to his word, knowing that he died for their sin and was raised up again on the third day, Father. Conquering sin and death. And Lord, we just give you thanks for all of these things. In your son's name, amen.